0: All right, let's grab our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis chapter 43. And we'll begin in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. In chapter 42, we saw that the nine brothers of Joseph came back to Canaan with food that Joseph had given them and had also discovered that the money in which they thought they used to purchase that grain was also found in their sacks. As time now has passed on while in Canaan, after returning from their first visit to Egypt, the grain in which they brought back has now come to an end. And as the severity of the famine continued, things became gravely difficult for them. So Jacob finally tells his sons, it's time now to go back and purchase more grain so that we don't die in the midst of this famine. However, though, there was a caveat. For them to return, Joseph had requested that Benjamin be brought back with them. To guarantee their return, he kept one of the brothers, Simeon, there in Egypt. But it appears by the text that they prolonged their stay in Canaan because Jacob wasn't willing for Benjamin to return with uh, them. It was his only other son from his favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph, who he now believed was dead, was her first. Benjamin was her second. But out of necessity, it was time now for them to make a decision and return to Egypt, regardless of the cost. And like in chapter 41, where it begins by describing the environment the situation that joseph faced while in prison describing the manner in which time passed as full two full years meaning it was very slow methodical it was monotonous that's the that's the word i was looking for and it was going by slowly it was the same thing every single day In chapter 43, we are given the scenario of the severity of the famine, which we need then to pause and to consider how Christians react during times of crisis. As I went back throughout history, and of course the world has experienced many crises and many different types of adversity, I discovered that all Christians react to crises in one of two ways. Very few stay uh, static, meaning remaining in the position that they were prior to that crisis occurring. The first change in a Christian's life is they tend to lean into the Lord. This is the first group. They grow closer, they repent of sin, they bring their hearts before the Lord and really rely on Him sustaining them during this difficult time. The second group of Christians, however, they have a tendency to fall away from the Lord during times of crises. Often due to the fact that the context or the environment in which they live their Christian life within has changed and now they don't know how to live as Christians within their new environment. For example... If you live in a nation where Christians are not persecuted and then all of a sudden they become persecuted within that same nation, many Christians will fall away at that time because they don't know how to live in a society that renders persecution against them. And throughout history we see this. We saw this all the way back in Egypt when Moses went in. And as God began the deliverance process, as Moses was interacting with Pharaoh, what happened as things became more difficult for the Jewish slaves in Egypt? Did they weather that well? Or did they begin to complain? Did they begin to yell at Moses? Did they say, hey, what are you doing, pal? That's in the version of the Bible I I write. (laughs) You've just made it more difficult for us. He made it harder on us, not better. But in the end, of course, God knew exactly what he was doing. Which brings me to COVID. And during these last two and a half years, again, we have seen the same pattern occur. We saw some Christians lean into the Lord when their personal mortality was possibly threatened by this new unknown novel virus. But other Christians had it uh, fell away. And I was surprised by it. I shouldn't be, but I was surprised by it. It's because the context in which they lived their Christianity was changing. And they were, some personally had expressed to me that they were angry with God for allowing a pandemic to occur. Now, there have been pandemics throughout history. And of course, we complicated it by the way our politicians responded to the pandemic. We made it even more difficult. But some Christians fell away. Churches are still reeling from the lockdowns. Christians haven't returned to in-person services in many churches. And I find that extremely unfortunate. God wants us to come together. He wants us to fellowship in person with one another. Here at Calvary, we were conflicted. And as we prayed about it, we came, it was, of course, March, and then by the time we got to June, we were praying about, well, should we return to in-person services? We came to the conclusions that we should, even though it was contrary to the governor. We didn't want to violate the mandate. We didn't want to contradict it. But we knew in our hearts that we had to be Uh, faithful to God in this situation. But I always want to respect authority as much as I possibly can. Submitting to our government as much as I can until it violates the straight tenets of Scripture. And of course, when it does, I will be the first one to speak up. But as we began to pray about it, We had then sent out emails to the church saying that we were going to gather. Of course, we got emails back, but the mandate, but Pritzker. And I I think some people honestly thought that he would be outside in an SUV trying to prevent people from coming into the church. So I began to pray, and we began to pray as a church. And then God did what only God can do. For J.B. Pritzker received a letter from Justice Brett Kavanaugh asking J.B. Pritzker to justify to him how it is constitutionally legal for him to prevent Christians from gathering in churches. And all of a sudden, Pritzker's mandate went from a mandate to a recommendation. God made a way for us to gather without violating the mandate because that's what God does. And as we begin to read through our text, we are going to see God intercede just like that. But I want to go back to the reactions that various Christians have had to various crises. Because there's also a danger for those who have leaned into Christ during a crisis, there's a potential problem that we also discover as we look at them over time. Guess what happens? As the crisis dissipates, many of them fall back into apathy and complacency once again. Let us never do that. Let us never do that. Because now is not the time to, to return to apathy and complacency. As Christians, I don't believe we have the luxury of doing that any longer. Okay? Okay? but things had become severe in the land and they had run out of food. Jacob was a wealthy man and this wealth allowed him to be able to purchase grain from where grain was available. Where grain was available. But it does raise an interesting point and it speaks to that quote and I'm sorry I couldn't find out who originally coined the quote, but The quote was that money is only as valuable as that in which it's able to purchase. So if you're a millionaire and you're starving and there isn't food to purchase, what good are the millions? Money only goes so far. And now we're learning that in a different way. Before we had money, we were given money. But then supply chain stopped, remember? And we went to our stores and, you know, various SKUs were empty. You went to Walmart and everybody was fighting over the last uh, toothbrush, you know? I did win, by the way. However, though, we realized very quickly that money cannot provide everything in which we need. Jacob had money but nowhere in Canaan was there food to find. Food to purchase. He had to go to Egypt to do so. And of course there was consequences for him doing that that is releasing his son Benjamin to return with them. But now we're seeing that money also has a limitation when it comes to inflation. Inflation now has hit in a way that we haven't seen in decades. And our purchasing power has become, well, let's just say this much less. In fact, in surprising ways, last Sunday, my Dean and I and Autumn and one of our friends, we went out to a restaurant in Schaumburg that was recommended to us. And I'm not going to give you the name of the restaurant because I can't recommend it to you. But when I was there, they handed us menus, and from the menus you'd look it over, and then you'd go up to the cash register, order what you wanted, and then, of course, they would call your name when it was ready. It was a classy joint. <laughs> However, though, after we looked at the menus and made our selections, I went up to the cash register because somehow some way, I'm the one that always has to pay. I don't know how that works but they had a little sign right above the cash, the, the, the cash register. And it said, due to rising food co- uh, costs, the menu prices are no longer current, and because they fluctuate weekly, we won't know in, what your costs are until your bill comes. And I'm looking at that, and I, 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 just, I just pull out my wallet, and I'm just like, take it all. This is for a cheeseburger. I, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, <laughs> on our, one of our anniversaries, I'm getting off track here, but one of, our, <laughs> one of our anniversaries, we went to a very fancy place and they had surf and turf. And I was like, you know, I'm going to splurge. And I looked at the price and the price was kind of unique. It said market price. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go, I've been to Jewel lately, you know, Yeah. <laughs> My surf and turf alone was $85. Dina washed dishes. (laughs) No. (laughs) For two days. So after seeing that, I, I realized that there's a real limitation to money. And I think we're all experiencing that, right? I think we're all seeing that money, of course, is a necessary evil to survive in our society. But let's be honest. There are grave limitations to the money in which we have. We should be thankful for the money that God provides for us. We should steward it properly as God would have us. But in the end, let us understand that money is only as valuable as what it is capable of purchasing. And there's much that money can never purchase for us. So if I had my choice of relying on money or relying on the Lord, I will choose the Lord 10 times over. So now the brothers are being asked by their dad to return to Egypt. Let's continue in verse 3. But Judah, one of the sons, spoke to him, saying, The man, that is Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Dad, you got to send Benjamin with us. Verse 4. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel, now this is Jacob, of course, in back a few chapters, uh, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel after he had wrestled with God that evening means one who struggles with god a prince of god israel said why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still had another brother what are you guys doing to me you know why did you even have to mention you had benjamin i send you to go get grain and you give them the whole life story <laughs> jacob it's your fault that I'm in this predicament. But they said, the man asked us pointedly, directly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety, that is a guarantee for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever." For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. Dad, if we didn't delay because you were unwilling to make the decision about Benjamin, we would already be back a second time with the grain in which we need. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land In your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, uh, a little honey, spice, myrrh, pistachios, nuts, and almonds. Now take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother, that is Simeon, who was kept there, and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Again, last week we took a very sophisticated psychological test to determine if we are pessimistic or optimistic. It began with, do you see a glass half full or half empty? Or if you were one of the seven dwarfs, would you be happy or grumpy? Or watching uh, Winnie the Pooh, would you relate more to Winnie the Pooh or to Eeyore? I think that test came from Harvard. Lately, you have to ask those questions. It is obvious that Jacob is looking at everything from a horizontal Perspective. He is only seeing things from his viewpoint and drawing conclusions from that viewpoint. He has already self determined that he's going to lose Benjamin as he had lost Joseph. He's already determined that he's probably lost Simeon also. Because from that horizontal perspective, that limited view in which he has, He believes this is the way he knows that the events will unfold before him. But for Christians, we have a superior view that we can rely on. It's the vertical view. That vertical view brings God into the equation of every situation that we may face and find ourselves in. It allows God to be what I like to call the X-factor. And with the inclusion of the X factor, anything can happen at any time, can't it? Anything can change. Anything can happen by bringing God into the equation, allowing us to be vastly more than just simply optimistic. But not only can we be optimistic, but allow that optimism to be based upon the character and the nature of God himself. That he's a good God, a gracious God. And that he has our best in mind for us. And that in him, he be the author and the finisher of our faith. The work that he has started, he was faithful to complete. That all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The vertical perspective is the perspective that we must have in every situation that we find ourselves. Keeping God in the equation. Now, often we we may not see God work immediately. It may be at the 11th hour. Or in my case, it's the 11th hour and to the 59th minute. God showing up at the last moment in a dynamic way. Unbeknownst to his people. I certainly didn't call, you know, Justice Kavanaugh and say, hey, can you write a letter to Governor Pritzker? But God had it worked out. God always has it worked out. Joseph was placed by God in a position in which he could help and save his family from the starvation of the famine. God had sent Moses. Moses. God had positioned Esther at the perfect time, at a time such as this, to save his people. God puts Nehemiah as the cupbearer to to be there in the moment in which it was going to be necessary for him to demonstrate his grief over the ruins of Jerusalem. Time and time again, God shows that he's always one to ten to a hundred steps ahead of us. And therefore, why could we from our horizontal position with any confidence draw any specific conclusions and to think that we were right? I guarantee you that God sees it from a vastly different perspective. And for us, we need to embrace that reality of God by faith, by faith. God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you. I know your plans and purposes for me. And therefore, God, I will trust you in all that I do. Jacob had not yet come to that point. Jacob relied on his old tactics, the same tactics that he used with Esau. After stealing the birthright from his older brother Esau, Esau began hunting Jacob. Chasing him through the land. Finally, it came to a point where Jacob needed to confront Esau and he tried to, you know, win Esau's favor over by sending gifts ahead to appease and to satisfy Esau's rage and anger. And he's doing the same thing now, unbeknownst to him that the individual that they're dealing with is their son Joseph and whom they think is dead. Let us not scheme to deliver ourselves from the various circumstances, but let's wait on God to see what God may do. Now, am I advocating irresponsibility? Absolutely not. Am I saying that we have no role within the circumstance in which we find ourselves? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is after we have done those things that we can reasonably, we have to trust God for those things that we can't do for ourselves. And trust in him, not with a reluctant trust, but with a fervent trust. And allow him to work things out as he so sees fit. In verse 15, So the men, that is the brothers, took the present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt And they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home, slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now when the men, now the men that is the brothers They were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we have been brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. I'm glad they're concerned about the donkeys, aren't you? you can see very clearly in our text that the guilt of the brothers concerning what they had done to Joseph is still close to the surface. Though they have begun the process of repentance, they fully haven't come to a place where they've asked Joseph for forgiveness. We will see that occur in our upcoming times together. But this guilt has now clouded, everything that they see. And this guilt now is the interpreting factor to every circumstance in which they find themselves. And they have determined that the reason that we're being brought into Joseph's house is so he can make us a slave with our donkeys because of what we have done. Guilt is an incredibly powerful, powerful emotion. William Shakespeare, in King Henry VI, wrote, Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Because of their guilt, they weren't able to see and to enjoy what they were about to experience. Studies now have been, found, have been done here in the United States of America, and in and through those studies, we have discovered the number of American citizens who each and every day carry an excessive weight of guilt with them for one reason or another. But in that study, they also discovered that that guilt was clouding their reasoning, They were looking at their relationships with other people. They were looking at their personal circumstances through the lens of that guilt. And interesting enough, that as they went on to qualify within that study, they discovered that even when that guilt on a horizontal level was resolved to a certain extent, their view of the world hadn't changed. I believe it's due to the fact that the guilt that they are experiencing is the guilt that they are feeling from the conviction of the Holy Spirit in in His pursuit of them to lead them to repentance and to restore them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many individuals, especially at funerals, when I'm asked to officiate a funeral service, I will often be told by the loved ones of the individual who has died the regret and guilt that they have. And working through it, you realize that they now have concluded that, well, it's too late, they're gone. And I often try to lead them to consider that if they would repent and believe on Jesus Christ that guilt will be covered it will be removed it will be alleviated from their hearts and mind when god uses conviction in the life of a believer to bring them to repentance it is for the purpose of correction However, though, many Christians believe that God also uses condemnation. But condemnation does not have the same effect upon a Christian that conviction does. Conviction will draw a person, a Christian, to Christ in pursuit of repentance, where condemnation will drive a person from God. And it's in that separation, it's in that isolation, that Satan begins to work upon the heart and the mind of that individual. Asking them to question the validity of their salvation. Asking them to ask themselves if they are even worthy to enter into a church or house of God. But the Bible says, for there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You see, God is constantly pursuing a deeper relationship with us, and we do need to repent and confess sin, that that relationship may be as intimate as we want it to be and as God wants it to be, but He doesn't use condemnation to drive us from Him. He uses us, He uses conviction through the Spirit to draw us to Him. If you feel distant from God today, may I ask you that when you have a moment privately to ask As David asked, Oh Lord, seek me to see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, you promise that if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've simply come to church because the people who brought you promised to buy you lunch afterwards and you have that weight of guilt upon you, may I encourage you To seek Christ who has interceded on our behalf as a mediator between holy God and fallen man. It is interesting that the next thing that we see once they come into the presence of Joseph and they have this burden of conviction is that they seek a mediator. Notice in verse 19. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down another money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. The concept of mediation is a theological point that is found from Genesis to Revelation. The reason that it is in the Bible, is because it is a shadow of what Jesus Christ was ultimately going to do between us and God to bridge that cavern of separation that sin has created. They sought out a mediator, which was an absolute common occurrence in the culture from here to the new testament etc when you dealt with a person of authority in a place of guilt you sought a mediator one who can argue upon your behalf john plays on this idea in the new testament in first john calling christ our advocate a judge, that st- I'm sorry, an advocate, an individual that's standing between us and a judge. This mediator. As Paul says, there's only one mediator between man and God, the person of Christ Jesus. Jesus said it this way, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Hey, I'm going to say this right now, and it may offend a lot of people. There is only one way to God and that is through Jesus Christ. There are not absolute individual designs in which people can access into the presence of God. It is only through Christ. If I could say it more specifically, there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. Because I do believe that all people have an appointment with God. And the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then it's too late. They'll have their moment before the judge. But in our case, when we stand guilty, and we all know that we're guilty before God, don't we? We realize that our sin has separated us from our Holy Fa- heavenly Father. And if we were left alone at that moment, there would be no hope for us. But it's at that moment that we stand before the Father and Satan is accusing us, and rightfully so. Nothing Satan is saying about us is untrue. We are sinners. We have sinned and fallen and short, fallen short of the glory of God. It's at that moment that we in our helplessness experience the revelation of the grace of God as Jesus Christ steps in front of us and says to the Father, he or she is one of mine. I have bought and paid for them. Their sins have been washed away. Though they were as scarlet, now they are as white as snow. And you know what God the Father does at that moment? The Son steps up on our behalf. Case closed. Dismissed. That's what Christ has done for us. But now the brothers will realize that the money being in their sacks was no coincidence at all. But he that is the steward said to them, peace, shalom, be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of our fathers has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon to them. The money in which they had was the money in which they gave to purchase the grain. And in one way or another, either it was the same money or it was money that Joseph gave to pay on their behalf. Their money was restored to them. And so, verse 24, So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed donkeys play a prominent part in the story don't they then they made a the uh, the present ready for joseph coming at noon for they had heard that he would eat bread there and when jacob i'm sorry when joseph came home they brought him the present which was in their hand in their ho- into his the house and bowed down before him to the earth dream number one is now fulfilled and then he asked them about their well-being and said is your father well the old man of whom you spoke is he still alive and they answered your servant our father is in good health he is still alive And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face, came out and uh, restrained himself, composed himself, that's what he's saying, and said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. How is it possible that he could know who our, what our ages were? And then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much. I wonder if Joseph, uh, Benjamin had to pay market price. <clears throat> Serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. As we move through this story, it is so encouraging to me and awe-striking the forgiveness demonstrated by Joseph. Let us remember it. these brothers are the ones that threw him in a pit and left him to die. These are the brothers that then sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites and brought him to Egypt. It was these brothers that he found now as a, found himself as a slave in Potiphar's house that led to the uh, seduction of Potiphar's wife. It was these brothers that set him in prison for over two and a half years at least. And now he is giving the opportunity for reconciliation and restoration. But before that can happen, repentance has to occur. Now the guilt is there and it's on the forefront of their minds, but they still haven't reached out and asked Joseph for forgiveness. To think at this moment that everything is where it needs to be would be a false sense of security. It would be a false realization, a false conclusion. They need to go one step further to allow that process of restoration, I'm sorry, reconciliation, and then restoration to occur. When we come to Christ in repentance and believe on Him for salvation, a process of reconciliation then begins and occurs where we are adopted by him and therefore called sons and daughters of the king, heirs, joint heirs with Christ to all that Christ has for us in eternity. But see, God doesn't stop there. Because he loves you too much to leave you the way he finds you, he then begins to restore you, cleaning up the mess of the old life that you had most likely brought upon yourself. And that process is called sanctification, where He takes us out of the world and brings us into the kingdom of God. He brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, and He begins to work in you a new work that He is faithful to complete, and that all begins with repentance. It is interesting to consider how so many fall short of that full process. Oh, they may think that they are a Christian because they attend church. They may think that they're a Christian because they've served in a church or maybe that they've given financially to a church. Or maybe they were born in a Christian home, thinking that my mom and dad are Christians and my mom and dad, you know, have blonde hair, so I have blonde hair. They have blue eyes, so I have blue eyes. So they're Christians, I must be a Christian. Unfortunately, theologically, God has no grandkids. He wants each and every one of us to personally and individually come to Him. Repenting, turning from our old way and looking for that new life that only He can provide for us. And then He reconciles us to God. And then He restores us to become the men and women that He desires us to be. And you know what? In honesty, that we desire to be. That's what God does for us. And next week we'll see The brothers come to that point and realize that reconciliation with Joseph is now possible. One wrote concerning Joseph, and I'd like to conclude with this. He says, Joseph's life offers us a magnificent portrayal of the grace of God as he came to our rescue in the person of his son, Jesus. So many come to him like Joseph's guilty brothers, feeling the distance and fearing the worst from God, only to have him demonstrate incredible generosity and mercy. Instead of being blamed, we are forgiven. Instead of feeling guilty, we are freed. Instead of experiencing punishment, which we certainly deserve, we are seated at his table and served more than we can ever take in. And I think this is what Isaiah had in mind when he wrote in Isaiah thirty eighteen. therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him.